Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Osvaldo Paya was a man in Cuba who not only believed in the dignity of all humans, but that they all had the God-given right for liberty. Here are just a few of his own words. Quote, The first victory we can claim is that our hearts are free of hatred. Hence, we say to those who persecute us and who try to dominate us, You are my brother. I do not hate you, but you are not going to dominate me by fear. I do not wish to impose my truth, nor do I wish you to impose yours on me. We are going to seek the truth together. This is the liberation which we are proclaiming, unquote. And, quote, we can't be just the spectators of our own history. We must be the protagonist, unquote. Osvaldo Paya attempted to bring Cuba closer to all the broken promises of Fidel Castro by peaceful and democratic means, which in the end cost Paya his life. Thanks to David E. Hoffman, there is a biography of Oswaldo Paya called Give Me Liberty. Mr. Hoffman is a member of the editorial board of the Washington Post, author of several books, and winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Dead Hand. He stopped by the woodpile to not only talk about Paya's life and legacy, but the complicated history of Cuba before and after the communist takeover. My first observation about your book is the first 140 pages say very little, if nothing, about Osvaldo Paya. Now, I think I know why you did that, but I would like to hear your answer, why you spent the first 140 pages talking about the history of Cuba. Well, I would note that the book opens with the story of his last day of his life, which is very important, and also introduces you to him. Um, But those pages are... Uh, part of a story that you know without no without sort of reading that you won't understand the thread Oswaldo Paz's story is a part of a thread it's the last part and I considered looking at that thread just by itself and then when I walked backward to figure out what had come before I I realized that it's much more profound and actually uh more significant if you understand that he was uh, pulling on this thread that had been really laid down repeatedly by uh, Cubans in the Cuban Republic, which was 1902 to 1952. And that even the, the story of Fidel and the rise of the Fidel Castro's revolution sets the stage for Paya. I can't leave, couldn't leave that out. You know, it's just too rich. The people repeatedly in the history of Cuba have tried, largely without success, to create a democracy modeled partially on the United States. People who thought Cuba was one of the more um, prosperous and uh, far-sighted nations of Latin America. And Oswaldo was the last major attempt. There was one or two since, but how do you understand what he did unless you understand the history? Right. Yeah, I think it's great because 
I knew some of it, but I certainly didn't know all of what you included. And I think that really helps the reader, especially uh, most Americans probably don't know much of the history of Cuba before the communist uh, takeover. You know, there's a whole thing called the Cuba Republic, which is very rich and is very deeply intertwined with the United States. And uh, Fidel tried to, to whitewash it, you know, to airbrush it out. And I felt like it was important to restore some of that. So that said, uh, by your reckoning, has Cuba, since the Spanish-American War, since they got rid of the Spanish, uh, had had they ever had a period where they had a true Republican democracy, by your reckoning? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, they call that the Independence War, because um, that's what it was for them. And... I think that the uh, way I grasp the story from researching it and writing about it is that the first 20 years, the first two decades or so after 1902, uh, there was a military occupation for two years. And then in 1902, Cuba, uh, you know, had its own constitution and uh, it was independent with the one huge caveat of uh an amendment to the Constitution that gave the United States an overweening role in sort of keeping an eye on things and intervening, which it did. But the point is that for those first 20 years, setting aside, uh, you know, the Platt Amendment for a moment, Cuba was governed by presidents who were essentially war heroes from the war. Um, I think probably the generations of those that first generation kind of wondered like you know what do we fight this war for because what they got was kind of a um a, a less than pristine a less than democratic nascent you know republic nascent democracy it was very unsatisfactory and i introduced the readers to a lawyer a really bright lawyer named gustavo gutierrez who was really the best and brightest of his time. And he sat in the cafes with many of the writers, the intellectuals, the poets. I mean, you have to remember, Cuba is just brimming with this kind of energy. And a lot of them began to ask themselves, you know, is this what it was all about? Corrupt government, I mean, really, uh, absurd corruption, just in-your-face corruption, you know, a lottery that everybody knew was rigged. And, um, you know, government officials, actually the Cubans themselves, uh, oftentimes, because the Spanish had such a big influence on commerce and on other aspects of life, the Cubans actually themselves congregated into government jobs. That was the one kind of a place where they could find uh, you know, a way upward, and a lot of those jobs were horribly corrupt. So out of this uh, unhappiness with what had been developed in those first 20 years um, came, first of all, renewed interest in a fellow named Jose Marti, who was really the champion of Cuban independence at the end, you know, of, of the 19th century and who was killed in the first part of the war. And Marti had actually been sort of quasi, somewhat forgotten in Cuba in the first decades. But he, his writings, which were formidable and, and he was a very committed Democrat, were rediscovered in, the, in that time period by Gustavo and his uh, various cafe 
friends. And there was a series of sort of rambunctious uh, movements for reform, none of which really succeeded. And there was then um, the arrival of a president everybody thought would lead toward reform. Uh, president Machado, you know, built the Cuban Capitolio in record time, the beautiful capital that still stands in Havana and, and uh, Central Highway and many other things. But he also turned gradually and, and then not so gradually to become a dictator. And by 1933, he had established a dictatorship and was he was overthrown um, by a group of reformers and and military types. So Cuba was thrust back again into a period of sort of strongman rule in the 30s. And uh, this again led to this great kind of waves of reflection that I was talking about, an effort. And Gustavo and others led an effort to write a new constitution for Cuba. Remember, the first one was 1902. Here it is, the 1930s. Uh, the country is being ruled by literally a guy who's an unelected strongman, uh, Batista. And, you know, they're thinking, what have, we, what have we fought this war for? What kind of country are we building? Amazingly, Cuba came together for, to build a new constitution. Gustavo helped draft it. Uh, Batista actually took off his epaulettes, left the military and became a civilian candidate. Uh, for, for president. He ran against Grau, another guy who was a reformer, a really radical reformer. Um, and 1939, 1940 was really the beginning of the one really remarkable period of democracy in Cuba because they had to write this new constitution with a constituent assembly, like a constitutional convention. And the election to that assembly was the freest and fairest Cuba had ever had. Batista's uh, uh, group and the other one squared off in a divided uh, effort to write it. Power changed and shifted in the middle of the constituent assembly. But by uh, 19, by July 1940, things were ready to go. They had a presidential election. Batista won as a civilian leader legitimately. And that began 12 years of serious democratic rule. Also corrupt, lots of problems with corruption uh, remain. But Power was transferred in 1940, 1944, 1948, uh, each time peacefully and democratically. And it was probably the high point. And this 1940 constitution is really significant because it was a huge constitution, one of the largest ever written, um, more than 200 articles. But one of them was a kind of a bulwark against another dictatorship. And this provision in the 1940 constitution said that if enough people at the time, 10,000 people signed a citizen initiative asking for a law, then it must be considered by the legislature. In other words, it gave citizens away if enough people signed a petition to demand legislation, to demand change, to make sure that they wouldn't be ruled by another dictator. And this tiny little thread of a provision um, became uh, something that Oswaldo Piaf asked him to years later. You describe it really well in the book, The Times in Cuba's Early uh, History as an Independent Nation, about all the corruption. And, you know, after you describe everything, I, I can, it reminds me of other places where they tried democracy and somebody took advantage of it. You know, I, I think about here in America in the Jim Crow South, I mean, there, was, there wasn't really a democracy, it was just 
whoever could be the most corrupt or control the votes the best you know, would, would end up on top. And I can see where people would want to turn to, like, well, if there's going to be a dictatorship, at least they should be on our team or, or you know, they'll be our guy or something like that. You can see how it uh, led to Castro being coming to power so easily. I'm not sure I would say easily, but... <laughs> Certainly there was disenchantment with what democracy had wrought, and uh, Fidel sort of uh, played upon that, although you have to remember that at the beginning, at the outset, he presented himself as a champion of this particular, of democracy and of a clean government, uh, which Eddie Chabas, the great radio announcer, um, had been, you know, so powerful, a populist who had gone on the radio once a week and blasted all the others and, and, and called and said, we have to live up to these ideals. And when he uh, killed himself, uh, Fidel, you know, stood on his crypt and, and presented himself as, as, as his successor, as a populist, uh, even in the mountains as a guerrilla fighter. Um, when Fidel was fighting Batista, you know, they issued a manifesto uh, and said, we are seeking a pure, beautiful electoral democracy. Um, he betrayed all that after he took power. But beforehand, he was, you know, for years promising it. As far as America's role post Cuba's independence, sometimes you get different versions of the narrative that go somewhere between America was the entity getting in the way of a true democracy by propping up a dictator that they liked, or in another version, you hear that uh, they would tolerate a dictator for the moment while they were trying to figure out how to get rid of the guy. So what's your assessment of these views? I think they're both true. It depends at which time, but they're basically both true. There were four actual interventions. One was quite short, but some of them were, you know, quite long in which basically the United States ruled Cuba for a while until somebody else could be brought. And so, and they were each different, but the, the fact is that the Cubans certainly uh, were correct to say um, you know, how could they be uh, truly independent if if North America, you know, if North America was breathing down their necks in one way or another? On the other hand, um, even by the 1950s, it's quite clear that North American culture um, and the, the United States economy uh, had had very big impacts on bringing uh, Cuba uh, along. I mean, the Cubans had some of the highest television penetration rates in the 1950s, and a lot of Latin American com countries had very little. And uh, Cubans watched advertisements on those televisions for American products, and they thought about, you know, American food because it was part of, and also American household goods were heavily advertised. So uh, this thing worked both ways. It, it, you know, it, it was not, also Cuba uh, for a while was sort of a playground for the rich, especially in the 50s from the United States and even during prohibition. Uh, so. The, the idea that somehow there was a, a, a just a terrible imperialist influence. Um, the in, influence was uh, deleterious in a 
sort of political sense because obviously a sovereign country does not have a provision in its constitution allowing another country to intervene. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't as if uh, uh, Cubans were really anti-American. The thing I think the United States failed to recognize as those years went by was, uh, especially certainly by the 1950s, was that um, Cuba, although it looked and felt familiar in its urban sense, in, in its far, uh, in the rural parts of Cuba were way behind. And whereas Cuba had very high literacy in Havana, had very low literacy in in parts of the, of the countryside. And whereas Cuban uh, students had high quality health, you know, in the city, uh, out in the countryside, it was really, really primitive. And that sort of, uh, that split is what actually something that Fidel Castro played upon to sort of ask whether, you know, uh, Cubans wanted a more egalitarian uh, society and with a utopian idea that everybody would have, you know, free health care, free education, um, that everybody would be lifted was appealing to a lot of people, not necess- not those in the cities, but in the countryside, things were grim. And that, that was a really uh, very, you know, it wasn't uncommon in Latin America for, for those kinds of of divisions to exist, but it it played a big role in what Fidel said about the United States. So when and how did Osvaldo Paya end up on your radar personally? I'm an editorial writer at the Washington Post. I write the unsigned opinion articles uh, about different subjects, but one of my subjects is human rights and democracy. And right uh, after I joined the editorial board in 2012, literally a few weeks after uh, Oswaldo Paya died. And I wrote the first editorial about him and I've written many since. So my curiosity was piqued by uh, that particular unfortunate, really sad period after his death. Um, You know, there was never a thorough investigation uh, of his death to this day. We don't know uh, Really, uh, we have not had a credible investigation. And uh, I think for a couple of years, I was doing other things and, you know, noodling on the idea. And by uh, 2017, when my uh, previous book project was finished, I turned to the family and asked uh, if they would cooperate. And in 2017, they said yes. And that led to a couple more years of research and writing. so it book really came out in 2022, but it got started in 17. Regarding Paya's ideas, he would often say that uh, all rights come from God. Okay, Sometimes I have these conversations with other people who may be atheist or, or they're secularist, and they push back at that. They'll say, like, well, why must it come from God? How about just rights are rights, human rights are human rights? How do you think Oswaldo Paya would respond to that? Well, Oswaldo was a devout Catholic, and his faith uh, was not separate from his politics and from his understanding of how people should be governed. And the way Oswaldo put it is that as uh, humans, we have a right to rights that are bestowed on us at birth by God. And if you 
if that is not part of your faith, he would at least say your right to rights are bestowed upon you as a human being at birth and that they're not bestowed upon you by a dictator and that you get your rights because of who you are, not because Fidel Castro wants to give them to you. Uh, you know, Oswaldo believed that people should be the protagonists of their own history and not the spectators. As myself being a Christian, I sometimes have this a wrestle with this idea that, okay, Oswaldo Paya, I would say, was a very much a, a New Testament Christian in the fact that you know, he loved his enemies, or at least he turned the other cheek, right? Uh, he wasn't like some of the other groups in Cuba who were ready for like an armed resistance, possibly. And I wonder, like, for example, sometimes I, having been in other countries, you see people that have uh, dictators that have almost somehow, I don't know, lost their humanity on a way. You, sometimes you get so cynical at all the injustice, you think like, uh, man, there's no hope for that person. They're never going to change. They're never going to come to the table. But Paya never gave up on that, it seems. How do you think, or did he even address, how did he keep that sense of optimism or that sense of hope that you could maybe negotiate with awful people sometimes? You know, that's a really good question, Tim. That I, I haven't really... Uh, thinking about of all that I've read about Paya and all of his writings, um, I think that uh, Oswaldo Paya did have this uh, faith-driven idea that to start a new political system, you could not uh, prosecute the old one. And this is a controversial thing in the question of democracy building. Uh, Oswaldo said in the in 1990s when he was first beginning to get a citizen petition together based on the 1940 constitution you know he was talking about the need for a national dialogue and he said that everybody would be able to participate in that dialogue including members of the current castro regime um you know this to me in reading his handbill from that time it sounded somewhat vague and I think it was met with some questions at the time. People said, well, a dialogue for what, Oswaldo? What are you talking about? Remember, here's a guy who's doing this in part-time. He has a full-time job as a medical equipment technician. He's campaigning, handing out leaflets. He completely believes in nonviolent change. He does not believe in violent revolution. In fact, he's very worried about violence. There has been some uh, enormous massacre in China that in Tiananmen Square, it weighs on him. So, and he's passing out handbills calling for this national dialogue without, you know, excluding the current members of the dictatorship. A few years after that, as he began to develop it and talk to people, he uh, basically said, Fidel Castro cannot lead this country any longer, cannot be part of this. But he never said, we're going to exclude everybody who was part of it. And even till the end, he sort of said, if we're going to be create a new Cuba, we have to do it with everybody. And there are people who have pointed out that in previous uh, change, waves of change of this type, it's oftentimes necessary to have a lustration, to have a, some kind of cleansing or of people in the old regime, otherwise they'll corrupt the new one. And, you know, it's not always successful. In Russia, uh, where I personally spent years and covered it, you know, the new Russia never really prosecuted the, the Soviet Communist 
party members. Um, and in East Germany, you know, although there was uh, uh, certainly a an effort to keep track of the Stasi archives and the misdeeds of the Stasi, um, there never were trials of members of the East German uh, secret police for, for what they had done. And so Paya's idea about this, um, also, uh, he was very enamored of the Polish round table, and which led to successfully to a democracy. And, and again, if you remember, the round table was round and, and uh, uh, Jaruzelski and Walensa were both at that, at that, and at that table. And so Paya took that idea on which is not to exclude. And it was partly driven, as you say, by his faith. But if, if you don't mind, I think I'd like to tell people a little bit about who this guy was. Oswaldo Paya, you have to remember, was born in 1952. Literally, he lived his whole life under dictatorship. He never lived in, in a state of liberty, but it lived in his mind. And a real question I had in writing a biography about the guy is where did he get those ideas? How did that come to him if he never lived in one? I mean, if he had never, ever lived a year in a democracy, how did he understand what it would be like? And how could he become such a champion of this? And some of the answers are, first of all, that uh, Fidel Castro persecuted Christians. And during much of the uh, Castro revolution, Christians were marginalized, pushed to the edge of society, denied jobs. And Oswaldo Saldas had firsthand in his own family. Also, the churches were vandalized. You know, uh, sometimes when uh, Catholics were walking to mass, people threw tiny pebbles at them. Um, uh, somebody smeared a kind of a creosote on the church doors and on the on the on the priest's priest's car or the regime would have a very loud motorcycle drive in circles or around the church during mass to create so much noise to disrupt it these were common indignities and Oswaldo saw this as a young boy growing up and his mother said we've done nothing wrong you know, we're going to walk to church no matter what they do. And I think this uh, helped form his ideals of determination and resilience against this. In uh, 1965, he was 13 years old. He saw uh, Castro's goons uh, confiscate his father's private business. Uh, in 1968, when the Warsaw Pact Forces invaded Czechoslovakia. Oswaldo Paya led a protest in his high school. 19, uh, after that, in, in uh, 1969, he was sent off to Castro's forced labor camps for three years uh, because he was seen as a troublemaker and, again, strengthened his sense of resistance and de resilience and determination. And there's one more thing about this particular church. Uh, the name of the church was El Salvador del Mundo. And it was a church in El Cerro, a very uh, one time, very prosperous sort of upper middle class neighborhood of Havana that had seen better days. But this particular church, uh, Oswaldo's family, the Payas, uh, for four generations have been, been uh, going there and I think uh, if you walked in there on a, after Sunday mass, there's a large foyer before the main before the main chapel, and the families, uh, all of whom knew each other, and all of whom 
you know, were very tight. They would gather in this foyer and, and after mass and have long discussions about uh, policy and politics and things going on in the world. Remember, this was uh, people who had no access to free press and outside news reports. A lot of times they talked about a book that had been smuggled in or they talked about something they heard illicitly on overseas radio, shortwave radio. And Oswaldo was a young boy and he's listening and he sees that his parents are not afraid to talk in the foyer about things that were Ill- subversive. And then as a teenager, there was a, a priest, became the parish priest. His name was Father Alfredo Petit. And Father Petit told the young people who formed a youth group, he said, within the confines of this building, you are free. You are free to say anything. You are free to think anything you like. And basically, he said, the dictatorship doesn't work inside this building. And again, Paya was very impressed with this. He later, as a young man, um, formed a, a group like a, I guess you would call it kind of a study group, but it was called a, a, a free thinking club where people could come and have discussions like this. And so, again, all of these experiences as he was growing up in dictatorship pointed him toward resisting dictatorship and thinking about uh, what life would be like for Cuba in a time of liberty, even though he had never, ever lived it. On that note, you mentioned there was two libraries that would have an influence on Paya. One was the secret library that I think it was across the street from the church. And you list some of the... the that was on a different place. That library was in at the uh, forced labor camp. Yeah. Um, in that little island where he was on the forced labor camp. Yeah. Was that the Isle of Pines? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there was that library where there was works like 1984 and Dr. Chivago and all that. And then there was another library by an, uh, set up by an American guy, James Kaysen. And that was also full of all kinds of uh, books that were, uh, I would say, frowned upon at the very least by the Castro dictatorship. Talk a little bit about those libraries and their influence on, on Paya. I love to romanticize books, especially secret libraries, so uh, go to town. Yeah, this, was a, uh, this is a fascinating discovery that of mine, that talking to others who had been in the forced labor camp. Remember, this took the place of the time he was uh, supposed to be in the military, but instead of sending him for mandatory military service, they singled him out as a troublemaker and sent him to these uh, forced labor camps. And during the day, he and his pals, who, you know, they're 18, 19, 20, 21, they were working in in a rock quarry. Um, the Isle of Pines had a huge rock quarry, you know, marble from there was sent all over Cuba. And uh, the f- interesting thing about this experience is that they worked basically all day. Um, it was hard work. They were covered in dust. But they could say anything they want. They were out in the middle of a rock quarry. They could talk to each other as they wanted. And um, also, they were allowed uh, freedom on the weekends. And so this uh, quarry and the camp were near a small town on the Isle of Pines called Nueva Giron. And this town was a very classic small Cuban town with a central square, and there was a church in the central square. And uh, they were allowed to leave the camp and go to the central square, into the town on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, I think the ostensible reason was 
they were taking classes in the town and Oswaldo actually studied French, but they discovered this abandoned church and they fixed it up. It was kind of a statement of protest. Um, they got the keys from the parish priest who came only every few weeks uh, flying from the mainland and they, they painted it, they cleaned the windows and people started to come. It was quite a little protest, but then uh, when they were finished with that, they noticed that across the street was a library. It was a standard sort of Cuban state library. And they went over there and knocked on the door. And there were two young women who were the librarians who were trainees. They were librarian trainees sent from Havana. And they were probably quite thrilled to see a couple of guys come in, a couple of young men. They were very young also. And uh, looking around at the books, one of them, one of Oswaldo's pals said, you know, all this terrible stuff you have here, Marx, angles socialism we want to find something we can really read something really interesting so the one of the librarians uh takes them i think there were three or four that day uh to a storage door and opens this door and behind it is a really large room with some high windows and and couches and shelves full of illicit books that have been confiscated from Americans who lived on the Isle of Pines many years before. Books about culture, books that were all considered subversive. And she locked them in that room. She locked the door and they spent hours in there every Sunday for more than a year. And this uh, for Oswaldo Pio was a time of great uh, discovery, uh, reading things he didn't know, having debates with his pals. Uh, they went back every Sunday. So that it was a formative thing and again getting to the point where he knew what he wanted to talk about with the country right when he formed in his own mind an ideal of what liberty and democracy would be like um, the later library was one that was created by the uh, James Kaysen when he was head of the U.S. intersection in Cuba a much later time period and it was didn't involve Oswaldo per se but it was an effort by the United States to distribute literature in Cuba that was a band and it was brought over in a big container and uh, Kaysen would tell journalists and activists and other people in Cuba look if you want to come to our intersection and go in there and take a few books home please be my guest regarding either library eventually do you know if they ever got discovered or shut down by the dictatorship the one in the isle of pines i think um probably nobody ever paid any attention to again but um it is interesting that i had to ask myself where did those books come from mm -hmm. and they came from because there were americans who had big estates on the isle of pines before the revolution and their houses were cleaned out when they left so the case and thing was kind of a propaganda experiment by the united states you know to see if we could sort of disseminate uh free literature it was a it was, i think actually demonstrated the value of things like, you know, if they had Nelson Mandela's uh, autobiography there and, and in Spanish and they would distribute it, that was inspiring for people. It was actually a, a, a way to show the Castro uh, regime that, you know, they could not build a complete hermetically sealed um, society that information does want to be free, at least with a little help from the United States government. Right.
you talk a lot about how Osvaldo was very much inspired by the solidarity movement, Lech Luenza. I mean, even to the point that he grew a bushy mustache, you know, like Lech. And, of course, he hoped what had happened in Poland. You talked about the round table, and eventually Walensa ends up being the very first democratically elected president in Poland's history. What do you think was the recipe that was different? Why did it work in Poland? And to this day, it has not happened in Cuba. Tim, it's a, it's a very good question. It's unfortunately an extremely complex one. We have to remember that um, what hap- transpired in Poland was uh, really the, the collapse of, of uh, Jaruzelski was really the part of the collapse of the entire system. You know, that, uh, that what happened with the Pope John Paul and his influence in Poland, the first Polish Pope, um, the, the real weakening, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I mean, all of that. that and, and remember, that process in Poland was not quick. It actually took quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there, you can really find, we could talk all day about what really happened in Poland. But in the case of Cuba, the collapse of so, the Soviet Union was a lifeline. It was a, a source of major subsidy and support for Castro's uh, Cuba. But also when it finally uh, fell apart, Fidel survived and he barely survived. You know, the period of the 90s was a time of great deprivation for Cubans. Um, it was a close call. You know, the whole group of them, rafters called Balseros, tried to tried to leave in um, the '94. There, there's a real question, I think, of you know whether actually it was possible. Maybe Fidel wouldn't have held on, but he did, and finally Venezuela. Uh, rescued him in the late 90s. But in this time period, an absolutely vital thing happened with Oswaldo Paya. Instead of just handing out leaflets calling for a national dialogue, he decided he needed something a little bit more impactful, something that would cause change. His ideas about what democracy should be and what Cuba's future as a free Cuba would be, had sharpened. And so in 1996, really at the depths of this period of deprivation after the Soviet collapse, uh, Swaldo Paya came up with the idea of a citizen initiative. And this citizen initiative was called the Varela Project. It was named after Felix Varela, a illustrious educator and priest in Cuba's 19th century history. And this petition had only five simple demands for a free press, free enterprise, freedom for political prisoners, freedom of expression. Uh, it was a kind of a very simple, it, the national dialogue had prepared us, Waldo, for the method, you know, of gaining some signatures. Remember what I said about the 1940 Cuban constitution, right? If 10,000 people mm-hmm. so uh, signed a petition that provision, shockingly, was never uh, actually canceled, even though Castro eviscerated most of that constitution and created a dictatorship. For some reason, maybe because he thought nobody would ever dare do it, he left it in subsequent versions of Cuba's constitution. There was a rewrite in 1976 to make the constitution more like the Soviet one. It was called the Socialist Constitution of 76. 
that provision was still in there. That and it was um, again uh, an oversight, or maybe Fidel thought no one would dare. But when Oswaldo Paya in the early 1990s began thinking about how to cause change, he latched onto that, and essentially the Varela project was a petition. And I'll show it to you here. I mean, it's just as a single printed page. And on the bottom of it, there are usually, this is the five things. There was a place for people to put their names, their addresses, and their identity numbers. In other words, people were standing up to be counted, saying, yes, I support this with who I am. It was, And the, this petition effort, which got off to kind of a slow start in 97. Um, it picked up steam when Pope John Paul came to Cuba. And by 2002, Oswaldo um submitted to the legislature 11,020 signatures, more than the 10,000 necessary. He had verified the validity of every single one. He had proven that just a pencil and paper could be an important uh, weapon against totalitarianism, against a dictatorship. And there were thousands more that he held in reserve. They were held for him by nuns. Um, he later turned in another 14,000. And the the point is that the all of this learning that Oswaldo had done in the earlier years uh, came to fruition with this great uh, effort. And of course, this completely infuriated Castro. When I was reading in your book about this, you know, the Varela project and the fact that that a stipulation was still uh, in the Constitution, even the socialist one, I thought, I wonder if that was some kind of trick. Like, if you remember in China, Chairman Mao had this, you know, the the uh, 100 Flowers campaign where they invited criticism of the government to to help improve it. Right. Well. It was just a ploy to find out who their enemies were and to, you know, lock them up or execute them. And which, in essence, is kind of what happened, I guess, with Pia's project, where at least uh, a lot of people got identified as people who were not happy with the Castro version of uh, the government or society. Yeah, it is true that state security later went around to try and discover all the, these people had signed and stood up. But I think far more significant and much more important is the fact that they did, those people did stand up to be counted. Uh-huh. Remember, this is a time before the internet. You know, Oswaldo Paya didn't have the iPhone. He didn't have email. You know, he, he didn't have, he couldn't even call people. He went door to door. You know, his appeal to people that this was legal, it was in the constitution, um, that they were standing up to be counted for these five principles that to me is remarkable that in a dictatorship, in a place he was shut out of the, the press, Castro controlled all of the press, radio, television, print. Um, he had no other way to appeal to people other than his voice, his pencil, his paper, and tens of thousands followed him. That is the real significance of this. Yeah. I want to talk about the church. Sometimes, again, how it's uh, you tell in your book, I always contrast it with how maybe the Orthodox Church in Russia and in the Eastern Bloc worked with the the regime or the the Soviet system, and a lot of times you know they would you know, turn in. People. They were co-opted, Tim. They were co- totally co-opted. Yeah, right. They would turn in members that were a little too Christian or a little bit too serious about their faith. But in Cuba, you didn't have that exactly. But you did have a point where the, the Catholic Church there thought, okay, we need to kind of work with 
the the Castro dictatorship a little bit. Maybe we can get some alleviation of the from persecution, possibly. Can you talk about what was the thinking behind that, and how did it turn out? And what did Oswaldo Paya think about it? Well, first of all, he had a front row seat. He, you know, as I told you, uh, coming from a Catholic family in Havana, he was well aware of how uh, the revolution had marginalized. Uh, people of faith, especially Christians, but also Jehovah's Witnesses um, and others. And he also, I think, uh, felt that there was something very evident to many, many Catholics that the the church had not only been marginalized, but also the, you know, the pews had been emptied, that in many ways people had been forced to drive their faith internally to themselves and and you know you could not put uh, have external manifestations of your faith even at christmas you, your christmas tree could be okay in your inside your house but not outside and in fact i tell the story in the book about how oswaldo tried to hang a merry christmas kind of an illuminated banner on the church steeple which was outside and and did it as kind of a subversive uh, you know, screw you to uh, kind of statement. And this was evident to him also in the fact uh, the paucity of priests in Cuba. Uh, if you look at the numbers, you see after Fidel drove the priests and nuns out of Cuba to the point where there were actually very, very few. Some some parish priests had as many as 11 different churches to mind to. And, you know, it was a, there was just a lack of them. And I think that in uh, the big efforts by the Catholic Church to um, re-examine its role in Latin America. Um, and certainly uh, this came to a head with Vatican II, then followed by Medellin, and then the Conference of Puebla. Um, especially at Puebla, the Cuban bishops who attended this uh, looked around and they saw here was this church going through a vital sort of you know revitalization, reimagining its role in society in Latin America, and they were nowhere. They were nobody. They were they had a you know very few. They were just completely left out. And when they came back from Puebla, they decided we have to do something to revitalize ourselves and to rethink. And this the the, the bishops in Cuba decided to start a process of revitalization and thinking about their role in society. And uh, for various reasons, the bishop who was chosen to head this was a fellow named Jaime Ortega. Um, people said Jaime Ortega always had a pleasant smile on his face, even when he didn't intend it. It's just the way he looked, like he was smiling. But uh, the church that he inherited when he became archbishop uh, was really in very dire straits. Uh, literally, people had... Uh, that been driven into themselves. Uh, parishes were empty. The church had shortages of even things like paper to print bulletins on. So Jaime Ortega decided I'm going to be in charge of re-examining our role. Um, I need an assistant. I need someone to help me with that. He was very well known for like taking lay people and bringing them into things like this. And for various reasons, partly because of uh, Jaime was from the same town as Oswaldo's mother, um, he picked Oswaldo Paya to be kind of his assistant in 1984 to help him. And Paya 
set up meetings, attended meetings, took notes, traveled around. Pius saw this sort of seething demand of Catholics in the country for a more uh, authentic and open expression of their faith. And he saw and knew from his own time in his own family how they had been suppressed. So uh, this created kind of a bond at first. And Oswaldo wanted to be part of this great reexamination and reflection. Um, at the time, he was dating Ophelia Acevedo, and they later married. But Ophelia became kind of his partner in this idea that he would play a role. The reexamination was going to come to a giant conclave in Havana, and uh, it would climax with this conclave, and out of that would come a new church, or at least a revitalized one, a booklet of sort of principles and so on. And Oswaldo wanted to be part of that. And he wrote a speech. He wrote a speech that uh, he wanted to present at the conclave. Uh, but in a pre preparatory meeting, Jaime Ortega asked all his troops, which had now grown rather large, people helping with the conclave, to come to a preparatory meeting in Havana. And he asked Oswaldo, what did he want to say? And so Oswaldo read the speech called faith and justice um, out to this Havana preparatory group. And Ortega was furious because the speech really called upon the church to reach for its highest calling and to be an exponent of truth and to speak the truth to power and to stand for uh, people's basic rights against the dictatorship. And of course, Ortega, uh, upon hearing this, could see that this would actually aggravate Fidel greatly. It might further push the church into marginalization. He was also secretly negotiating a rapprochement with Castro. Ortega was. Oh. So uh, Payaz's speech came right as Ortega was actually going in the other direction. This caused a, a schism between Payaz and Ortega that never healed. Um, Ortega went his way toward rapprochement, Paya left the room and with Ophelia um, and realized that the church would never be really the, at the vanguard of change that he wanted. And this launched him on essentially uh, his quest to, for a political solution. Uh, he, in that, you know, he never lost his faith and Ortega appeared at his funeral and gave an eulogy to Oswaldo. But it, at that moment when he couldn't give that speech in the night. It was in the mid 1980s. Oswaldo realized the church was not going to carry on his fight. Right. And, you know, this thing, faith and also desire for change, those, for him, they were the same, but not for everybody mm -hmm. and not for Jaime Ortega, who later became a cardinal. Ortega later or later confessed, uh, even just a year later and something later, that he never got out of the rapprochement what he wanted. Mm. You know, that the church never was really uh, got everything. That, I mean, he got a little bit more from from Castro. The rapprochement happened, but uh, Ortega felt that the revolution was stingy and never really rewarded him with the, the things that he had thought that he had differed with Oswaldo about. Hagan las maletas que llegó su rendición Claro papo, con tu panza de sapo Tienes corazón de rana y actúas como capo La caca papa te chorrea hasta los zapatos Mucho pipi, mucho nervio, por eso repartes palo Ya Cuba no te quiere, se cansó de tu Can you explain how the East German Stasi and, and for folks who may not know this The Stasi were in essence the 
the secret police of the communist Germany, equivalent to the KGB or, or the Gestapo. Explain how they got involved in helping Castro repress dissent. And can you talk about uh, specifically that they had these rules, and there was a German word they used about how they identified threats to the dictatorship and how they, in essence, uh, neutralized them? The Stasi were a secret police in East Germany, and one of the things they did were to train secret police in other Soviet satellite countries, and not all of them. Um, actually, it was the KGB did some of the training in Eastern Europe, but beyond Eastern Europe, in Africa and Latin America, the Stasi were sort of contracted out to, to train some of the secret police. So they actually, uh, and I demonstrated in the book how they trained the Fidel Castro's secret police, his state security. And one of the things that Stasi learned in the 50s was that it's always better if you can destroy your opponents quietly by subversion than to have to actually beat people over the head with truncheons. And this became kind of a watchword of how they went about it. They came up with all lots of uh, methods by which they could spot possible dissent, um, they could undermine dissidents, they, they, you know, they were very good at wiretapping and finding out your weak points and um, tracking so that essentially they could control the society. They had a huge number of little three by five cards on millions of people um, to try and control them. And the, this, the Cubans were very interested in this because they also wanted to control their society and they wanted to repress dissent. And they sent uh, one of their uh, lieutenants to the university in Potsdam where the Stasi trained its officers. And the Cubans got uh, access to their special handbooks for how to do this and brought those lessons back. It was called Zersetzung, uh, the German word means decomposition. And it was a idea was that you would cause your opponents, the dissidents and people who opposed you to kind of go crazy and to destroy their efforts to be dissidents. So state security adopted many of these measures. And I describe in the book um, how that was accomplished. Yeah, my favorite one on there, because you see it everywhere, is this is not just in communist states, but I'm quoting this. These are people who are threats. Quote, those who see a gap between what was promised and the real conditions of socialism. Again, you see, to see that everywhere we're, you know, we're all supposed to, you know, go along with the narrative, even if it's completely not true. I mean, I always think about China where during the, uh, the Great Leap Forward, you know, people were starving to death, uh, but they were still supposed to pretend and never say that they were hungry or they would get in trouble. Somehow, if you could get in more trouble than starving to death, but their rules in general, their, their campaign, the decomposition, how did they use that against Pai personally? You know, there were many different ones. I described some of them in the book. Um, well, one way was that in uh, 2003, after the Varela project had been turned into the legislature, uh, Castro threw the thing in the trash can. He didn't honor it. But then uh, within a year, he went out and arrested uh, dozens of Oswaldo Paya's uh, associates, people that had gone door to door and, and collected these citizen petitions, were all arrested and given uh, long jail sentences. Um, and Oswaldo wasn't. He, he had a, a, you know, a duffel bag by his door. He thought any day he could be arrested. But it was kind of psychological warfare. It was torture. You know, 48 of his 
people that had helped him, plus a bunch of other journalists, for a total of 75 people were arrested in um, spring of 2003 in what was called the Black Spring. And, you know, imagine if you're a leader of a movement, Oswaldo had formed a movement called the Christian Liberation Movement. He had championed the Varela Project. You need teams. And he had teams of people. People had devoted their, risked their, really, their careers, everything. And then suddenly all of them, they were all men, there was one woman who was later released, but they all suddenly are in prison. Their families are bereft. You know, hundreds of people are thrown into a, a black hole like this. And he was not arrested. It was an effort to create suspicion that maybe he, uh, you know, had some in and he didn't. But it was a, they constantly played these psychological games to try and undermine him. They would have a truck bump off, you know, uh, while he's riding his bike home, you know, bump too close and his bike would fall over. Or they would send out letters to people, fake letters claiming that Oswaldo was uh, benefiting from a Florida charities or raising money for the Varela Project, which wasn't true. They made that up completely. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of these methods, not to mention uh, hardcore things like bugging his house. You know, they actually put uh, listening devices in his bedroom. If diversity is a virtue, then uh, Cubans, both on the island and in exile, are very virtuous people in that they have a wide diversity of opinion, especially when it comes to the political future of Cuba. When you wrote about these different factions and groups in your book, were you, I'm sure you had to be cognizant that some were going to not be pleased in how they were presented, especially uh, as that some of them weren't happy with Paya uh, while he was alive. So talk about that, if you don't mind. And also, how have they received the book since it's been out? You know, the people who were not happy with Payao in Miami in 2003, uh, he made a trip to Miami in 2003 to confront some of this. But frankly, it was, in my estimation, um, largely because they didn't even understand what he was doing. And, you know, the Miami exile community had created kind of a... Uh, a model of opposing Fidel at all costs, you know, demanding nothing less than decapitation of the regime. And here's this guy going door to door, you know, talking about national dialogue and, and holding up a piece of paper and a pencil and calling for petition. They, they thought he was just, uh, I don't know what they, they just didn't appreciate. Actually, if you take the camera over to, Oswaldo's perspective and go door to door talking about democracy and a free press and freedom of speech in Cuba, you're actually doing something quite courageous. And Miami didn't understand the degree to which he was fighting Castro on his own turf. And, and you know, I wish they, we all wish they had understood it better. I think after his visit in 2003, they did understand it better. And, you know, my method is to try and talk to a lot of different people. And I did talk to them, those who had been critical of him. And I think today many of them would say, look, we didn't understand 
we didn't realize that what he was doing was quite tough. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought he was somehow proposing a constitutional procedure that would be a compromise with Fidel, but it actually Pio was was quite bluntly challenging the revolution head on. So I, I chalk it up more to a uh, misperception. And I, I can see how it happened. That a very big uh, event for the Miami exile community was Elian Gonzalez and the whole Elian affair, which happened right at the time of the Varela Project. And Oswaldo thought the Varela Project was a much more sort of ballsy, you know, a challenge to the revolution. It was. And yet all Miami could think of was this poor boy. And of course, uh, the history of that is that they lost that battle and Elian went back to Cuba. Um, But it it really didn't change anything. The Varela Project was about change. In America, I think it's safe to say that when you get to look at all the political uh, landscape, at least on the conservative or libertarian side, they don't need much convincing that the Castro brothers, they didn't respect human rights. But on the left, especially on the hard left, you still have folks, and I, I run into them all the time, that still have a maybe unrealistic or they still hold him in high regard. When you were writing this book, or when, and of course now you've been promoting it for at least a year, do you still run into people that are, that are totally surprised that uh, someone as harmless and, and as kind or as peaceful as like Osvaldo Paya and Harold Sapero were murdered by this regime that has been presented as a model in some circles? It's not a model of anything. You know, uh, the Castro Revolution, anybody that spends any time really examining it closely sees that it's how, uh, how much it's utterly failed. It's failed the people of Cuba. And boy, you go today and you just, you can't miss it. You know, Fidel's charisma and the, uh, the thing that motivated millions to actually get behind him at the beginning, that sort of uh, desire for uh, a messiah, um, it's all gone. And it didn't leave them with very much to be proud of. So I would be happy to debate anybody about the Castro Revolution. You're right. There was a great deal of romanticism about Fidel still in in the United States and also in Europe, but it's misplaced. Um, you know, the revolutionary champion completely and utterly um, destroyed Cuba and has let its people down. And if you'd like one small piece of evidence of that, just ask any of the 300,000 Cubans who fled the country in the last year because of hunger, because of the paucity of any hope for a future. Let's talk about the legacy of Osvaldo Paya. Do you feel that maybe in death he's become a greater influence than when he was alive? Well, I wish I, uh, he hadn't died. I think that he had a lot still to offer. But um, it is interesting to me when I ask what the legacy is. I think, you know, I remind you that in 2002, as he went door to door between 96 and 2002, um, with just a pencil and a piece of paper, uh, getting people to sign for the Varela project, state security tried to interrupt it. You know, they were so afraid of him. They were so afraid of this little piece of paper that he was passing around that they tried to fake signatures. And he, he caught them at it and he, he verified the signatures that he turned in, that they were all true. And then, of course, Castro ignored it. But he did this without 
any of the modern tools of communication that we have for mobilizing people today with, without television, without radio, without any kind of newspaper, without any internet, without any email, without any text messaging. There was no Instagram. There was no social media. He did it anyway. And now in July of 2021, um, in the middle of that pandemic, there was suddenly an enormous outpouring on the streets of Cuba in July 11th of 2021. It was a different time, right? 20 years later, uh, this outpouring was sparked by a Facebook Live video generated by a smartphone held up by a man who was really just a, a, a toddler when Oswaldo was alive, a young man who had, you know, as a new generation. And that Facebook video went viral on one day. And one of the interesting things about those protests, and again, those people were not using, um, you know, the Varela project, but many of them still remembered the symbols of it and what it was for. And I thought it was fascinating to see um, on the streets, many of them were holding up their hand, their thumb and forefinger in the L for liberation. For liberation and this was what oswaldo had originally thought of calling his movement he later called it the christian liberation movement but that's l that signature demand for liberty um you still see it today when people are arrested when they're in the streets all over cuba this is oswaldo's legacy they remember the central thing he bequeathed them which is that your rights are given to you at birth. They're not given to you by the dictatorship. And even today, last week, this week, when you see people protesting in Cuba, it's with their thumb and forefinger in an L for liberty. I think even with the, the San Isidro movement, they were chanting, we have the rights to have rights, which I think is directly taken from uh, one of Paya's writings, you know. They're still aware of them. Um, so times have changed, but the idea that uh, that he left them with is not. The official communist publication in Cuba is called uh, Grandma. It's a newspaper and a website. Right. So my question for you is, uh, have they got around to reviewing your book yet? And if so, how many stars have they given you? No, they haven't, and uh, none. <laughs> have they responded to the book or your work at all, are you aware of? No, they've just ignored it. Yeah. Um, there have been no response at all. And the book came out in June of 2021, 2022. So it came out last June. Here we are in 23. It's been almost a year. Um, and I, you know, for your listeners, it's it's still widely available. I hope people after listening to us today will grab a copy. Um, it's called Give Me Liberty, and it's the true story of Oswaldo's quest for free Cuba. For folks that hear this story and, you know, they're moved and they feel like they want to do something, in your opinion, how can we help the oppressed people of Cuba from here in the free America or, or the free West or wherever they're listening to this? You know, I think that actually... There is something happening in our time right now many Americans are only just waking up to. And we're waking up to the fact that uh, we thought maybe dictatorship was some kind of 20th century phenomenon and that when the Cold War ended, um, it was over. You know, we've been on vacation 
since the Cold War ended. And um, I got news for you. If you not only in Cuba, where people are still living under Castro's dictatorship, in Belarus and Russia, in China, Burma, Vietnam, Cambodia, Egypt, Turkey, Nicaragua, I could just keep going on. Dictatorships have been rising for a decade all around the world in a way that threatens a lot of the values that we stand for. I think one thing that people can do is to uh, maybe take a little bit more clear-eyed view of this danger that is consuming uh, freedom in a lot of ways in a lot of places. You know, four or five years ago, even though Belarus was always kind of a uh, strangely hybrid you know, half Russia, half Western thing. There were no political prisoners, and now there's 1,500. Hong Kong was, just a few years ago, the, one of the freest cities on earth. It's now become part of the Chinese Communist Party's mainland suffocation of freedom. There are 1,500 political prisoners in Hong Kong. Um, and I could just keep going on and on. And I think if we were just a little more cognizant that democracy is something worth fighting for. I haven't mentioned Ukraine, but what what people are fighting for in Ukraine is the same thing that people in Cuba want. And you know, those five principles of Oswaldo Paya's Varela project, um, those five basic ideas of what liberty is about are valid everywhere. And we also, in the United States, constantly have to pay attention and mind our own democracy. One of its greatest strengths is that our democracy is self-renewing, you know, it is self-correcting. We make mistakes, but unlike others, you don't find Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, you know, able to correct mistakes because they can't, because those totalitarian societies are simply based on their own survival. And we're based on something better, which is survival of a system of ideals. And I think again, when people say our democracy is troubled, well, it is, but watch it fix itself. Mm-hmm. It's its greatest single attribute, and we need to pay attention to that and appreciate it and understand it. If you're still in a Cuban mood, you might give In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 236 a listen, where we talk with Osvaldo Paya's daughter, Rosa Maria Paya, about the work that she's continued since her father's murder. Then there's 277, where historian Victor Triai talks about his book on the Marielle Boatlift. And finally, there is episode 272, where political dissident Orlando Lazo talks about his troubled days in Cuba before going into exile. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.